Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Although the space race was a form of Cold War brinkmanship, those attempts to break away from Earth's atmosphere were also idealistic. The technology would usher humanity into a grand new age of discovery and enlightenment, where Earth would remain our home. But now, many aspiring space travelers, be they billionaires or amateur scientists, feel a post-Earth future is necessary because climate catastrophe is a foregone conclusion. In the February issue, Jessica Camille Aguirre visits Biosphere 2 to experience an amateur scientist's first test of a space analog, his own crack at replicating Earth's ecological systems within a hermetically sealed module that could be used for long-term space travel. I spoke with Aguirre about her essay, which explores not just the struggle to recreate the infinitely complex biological systems that make life on Earth possible, but the fatalism that arises by only viewing those systems as sites of resources that should be extracted until they're completely spent. So can you tell us about Kai Stotts and his project? And at what point did you know that his project would be the center of your story? Kai is a little bit of maybe a non-traditional scientist, let's say, one of many in this bold new era where there's a ton of information available and people can kind of draw their own conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Stotts is this is this really unusual guy. He's had a very unique trajectory to to the point where he's at now, and he's kind of dabbled in a bunch of different things. And his formal training is as a computer scientist and a mathematician. And he, as a result of that, he was very interested in space exploration. And he wanted to look at how to develop life support systems for outer space. And so he brought his computer science training to bear on the development of a computer program called CMOC, which was essentially supposed to enable people to change the parameters in a model life support system to see what the outcome would be depending on, you know, what kind of parameters people set. And it was supposed to be life support systems that adopted some sort of biology. So the life support systems that are now in place on the International Space Station, for example, are predominantly physico-chemical systems. But there's a general kind of accepted acknowledgement that in order for humans to travel further and be in space for longer, there will be a need in the long run to incorporate some sort of biological elements. And so that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to model how this would work. And when he was doing that, he found that there wasn't the kind of data that he needed in order to set up his model. And so he designed and uh, pursued an experiment to look at It was a plant ecology experiment, and he decided to do it at Biosphere 2, which is the site of this old experiment that took place in the 1990s to try and replicate the ecosystem of the entire Earth. And, you know, while he was there, he was kind of wandering around campus one day, and he saw this old test module that was dilapidated and abandoned. And he asked the director, you know, about the module and whether he could he could rehabilitate it. And the director was kind of like, sure, well, nobody's doing anything with it. And so, so Stats decided to launch this project, which is the project that I write about in the in the Harper's piece, which is 
to try to build an actual analog. They're called space analogs. In other words, kind of a replica or a test run kind of system on Earth. And he wanted to do it using biological elements. And so when I spoke with Stotts, I came across Stotts because I was interested in the history of, of Biosphere 2, this, this kind of, you know, this big experiment that was abandoned in the, in the 90s. And when he told me that he was going to rebuild the test module, this old test module, and that he was going to put people inside the test module and hermetically seal them to see whether it would work as, as a true seal and could function as a real analog that was chemically closed off from, you know, Earth ecosystem. And when he then invited me to come and seal myself inside with researchers, it just seemed like an ideal Harper story and a proposition that I that I couldn't say no to. I mean, come on. How are you going to turn an invite like that down? Exactly, exactly. Impossible. <laughs> Especially because he initially proposed like a few weeks and then it became a few hours for the very first test run. And so when he said a few hours, and he threw in also the, the promise of some beers. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> all right, beers, a couple hours, I can, I can do that. So the story is centered around Biosphere 2, which was this very strange and, and I mean, I, it was obscure for a while, I would argue. But then during the Trump era, Biosphere 2 sort of regained a certain amount of attention. There was a documentary about it. And largely that attention was because Steve Bannon was like part of the, I guess, the company that shut it down. And so what is it about Biosphere 2 that initially piqued your interest in that experiment, even though it failed? So the thing that I find so interesting about Biosphere 2 is that in an extremely concrete sense, it acts as kind of a parable of how humans relate to the planet. And in a lot of ways, the kind of, of parallels that you see on a very small scale, because Biosphere 2 is operating as a microcosm of, of the planet, are the kinds of things that are becoming more and more relevant in like the late Anthropocene. And so just to rewind for, for one second and to give a very brief history of Biosphere 2, it was a group of people who came together as a result of belonging to a theater troupe. They were drawn to the work of, of Buckminster Fuller um, and this idea that he had that he called synergetics. So essentially the idea is it essentially boils down to that the whole is, the, is more than the sum of the parts or that the behavior of individual parts of a system can't determine the outcome of the whole system. So they were really interested in applying that form of thinking. They were interested in kind of like the synthesis of ecology and technology, and they wanted to apply this approach to living on Earth. And they got very lucky and had a member join them who came from a very wealthy oil family in Texas. This guy's name was Ed Bass. And he... You always, you always need that one guy. That one guy. So he was, <laughs> he was the guy and he came and, you know, with kind of like endless funds, basically. And he underwrote a bunch of projects that they did. So they ended up 
you know, they built a ship together that they that they sailed around the world visiting different ecosystems. They bought a huge ranch up in like the Kimberley region of Australia, which is a super, super remote region. They opened up an art gallery in London. They bought like this farmhouse in southern France. So they were they were kind of all over the place and all over the world. And they were they were, you know, hosting conferences and and bringing, you know, kind of radical thinkers together and like Burroughs and Abby Hoffman and all these different people were kind of associated with the group at, at different points. And, and, and in this came the origin of this idea to build Biosphere 2, Biosphere 2 being named to, to kind of prompt the question, like, what was Biosphere 1? Biosphere 1 is the planet Earth that we live on. So this is like the planet version 2.0 is essentially what, what they wanted to build. And it's, I think that in the history, it's, it's kind of been lost exactly what the like what the impetus was at the genesis of this project and it essentially it boils down to a couple of different factors so you know they were really interested in something called the gaia hypothesis which has become popular again which is essentially the hypothesis that the earth is one self-regulating organism and so in the loosest sense, Biosphere 2 was conceived as, you know, a potential way to test that hypothesis. But it was also, you know, they were interested in, in, in space travel, and it was also intended to be kind of a test of whether or not you could build an entire ecosystem that could sustain human life in a way that was completely sealed. Biosphere 2 ended up being a tighter seal than the International Space Station is. So they they wanted to do kind of a couple of different things at the same time. And during the course of, it was intended to be a hundred year project and the different groups of people were supposed to cycle in and out of this facility, which basically looks like this, this kind of fantastical greenhouse in you know, the desert of Arizona in two year stints. But they were, it was supposed to last for a for hundred years. And, and essentially what happened is that it kind of fell apart a few months into the second two-year stint. But during that, you know, during that first, during the first enclosure, which is when eight people were sealed inside for, for two years, a couple of really interesting things happened that were mostly unanticipated, but also I think, you know, in retrospect, lend themselves to this idea of you know, this story as, you know, a parable for our times, which is, you know, one, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere went crazy. Like it went through the roof and it was like a couple thousand parts per million. I think more than 4,000 parts per million is what it ended up getting up to. And everybody developed sleep apnea. That's right. That's right. They had so high. (laughs) They had sleep apnea. They were sleepy all the time. They had a hard time lifting stuff. The breaking point is when the doctor on the crew couldn't add up like a couple of numbers. Because what happened was is it wasn't just that the, that the carbon dioxide was going up. It was also that, that the oxygen uh, was being lost. 
And eventually Columbia scientists figured out that the reason why is because they, they brought in this really rich soil that was full of microorganisms that behave in you know, the same way as any other animal and that they, you know, they take in oxygen and, and, and release carbon dioxide. And this hadn't been, been factored in. And they had the saving grace that they had put in a bunch of concrete that hadn't cured yet by the time they they enclosed themselves. And so actually the concrete was absorbing a bunch of the carbon dioxide, also some of the oxygen because CO2 is obviously contains oxygen atoms. But in any case, the, the, the oxygen was disappearing. Carbon dioxide was going crazy. And so they were battling on a day-to-day basis with trying to keep CO2 levels down. And it was causing, you know, huge rifts the eight people inside ended up splitting into two factions. And, you know, meanwhile, they were also not producing as much food as they should have been. And so they were, they were kind of calorically deprived and losing a ton of weight. So it was, it was very... The only uh, scientifically accepted study that came out of the Biosphere 2 experiment was what about starvation and reducing... Like what happens when you're not getting enough calories? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, the doctor on the crew was really interested in, in the effects of caloric uh, deprivation in terms of ex- extending life lifespans, and so he got some good data got some good data out of the uh, out of the enclosure. But I think that that at the end of the day, and there were there were a lot of I think there were a lot of really interesting insights that were derived from that experiment. Ultimately, ended up going up in in you know, this this very kind of dramatic ending, which is the financier ended up losing patience with the with the leader of the group and and he enlisted Steve Bannon to come and he got an injunction from a judge in Texas and he kind of stormed the mission control one day with, you know, these like armed federal marshals and private security people and and they ended up taking over the whole the whole thing. So that's kind of what what drew the the enclosure experiments to a close. But you know, science is still happening there, and a lot of interesting science has come out of there. A lot of the data from the from the experiment itself has kind of been lost to the wind. But I do think that, in so many ways, the story of the people inside of Biosphere Two and what they experienced and and how they understood their relationship with their you know miniature biosphere has so much to say about how we live on on the planet now. Yes, absolutely. And a lot of the problems that you were describing, the entropy, you know, chaos within a closed system has a lot to do today with what how we could be versus how we are dealing with issues like climate change. And of course, there are certainly people who have a fantasy about what's going to happen when climate change kind of goes out of control. And then there's the reality is probably going to be something closer to what happened on Biosphere Two. But that's just that's just my that's just my take. Um, <laughs> Let's hope Stephen Bannon doesn't come riding in at you know the eleventh hour and with armed armed marshals. I don't want to see that guy ever again. But you know, one of the most remarkable and delightful things about Biosphere Two is how many different potential readings one can make of it. You know, you had a really elegant explanation of what it was. What was the aspect of the story of Biosphere 2 and sort of returning to it that you most enjoy thinking about? Oh, I love I love the approach. So the people who were ultimately enclosed in Biosphere 2, they called themselves the Biospherians. 
And they had these really deep convictions. And I think that, that what I find most compelling about the story is, is their, their commitment to building a utopian project, essentially. So I, I, find, I find that people who devote themselves, or rather, in general, the active pursuit of utopia to be a really fascinating subject. Right. And this is not to sort of like, I'm going to sign a petition. This is literally you're putting your body on the line. You're giving up years of your life to do this. Like yeah. the, It is a truly remarkable thing what they did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so interesting. I, I was able to spend a lot of time with one of the Biospherians after reporting the story for Harper's. And she very generously gave me access to the journals that she kept when she was inside the biosphere. And they are this incredible melange of like, you know, very banal, you know, logistical, you know, data sampling and the day-to-day chores that make up, you know, what she's doing. And she also charts, charts her dreams and analyzes her dreams. But in the midst of all of this, she's also pretty much on a daily basis reflecting on what it means for her to be where she is. And I find that to be really fascinating, you know, the, the kind of intentional consciousness making that, that, that the people who are inside brought to bear on their daily experience of, of being there. And, you know, I think that, like, utopias are so interesting anyway, but I think that especially with this project, and especially kind of in this moment that we find ourselves in now, of this kind of constantly feeling like we're facing, you know, like imminent planetary collapse and, you know, political dysfunctionality and this, this kind of all-consuming background panic or, you know, willful delusion about like the immediate future. I'm super interested in these kind of evocations of, of, of like environmental utopianism. So when these guys built this place, they really, they rendered their project as, as, as like a new world, like a place that had never existed before. I find that to be really fascinating. And the rendering of an environmental utopia in this moment seems like a really rich place to to dwell uh, <laughs> as an yeah, antidote yeah. to that kind of background panic, right? That seems to like yeah. consume contemporary life. Well, consume some people, right? Okay, say. yeah, <laughs> <But> <laughs> true enough. No, I, I yeah, I mean it is. Um, like I think again, you know, talking about the biospheres, it is really important to remember that these were you know, the term disruptor gets thrown around a lot. And these people were actually like the real deal here. I'm really trying to do something bold. They were totally the real deal. And they were these disruptors, but they were also like, you know, they were really wacky people and doing really wacky stuff. Like, (laughs) you know, they, they, I think at some point, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm remembering this correctly, but I think at some point they did like a full body painting when they were inside that involved them like being naked and running against a big canvas and they put on theater performances. And then they also, you know, talked all the time about what it meant to be inside, right? And they talked about things like 
like eating the same atoms over and over again because they were in this, you know, like cyclical system, which is so interesting because it reminded me when I read that, it reminded me of this book by Kim Stanley Robinson called Aurora about basically like a bigger and more complex biosphere too essentially with a bunch of different biomes that was that's a spaceship right in the book and it's and it's going to a distant solar system this is this being a novel obviously but one of the things that one of the characters in the book keeps talking about is you know how they're eating their ancestors you know every time they sit down to a meal she kind of talks about how they're eating their ancestors and (laughs) this idea of you know eating the same atoms over and over again or eating eating your ancestors in this like multi-generational biosphere spaceship is it sounds really wild and out there but at the same time in this you know very visceral way that we can understand it evokes the kinds of cyclical functions that the planet does i mean we do yeah we do this right it's it's on a big scale and it takes place over long periods of time so it's hard to imagine but essentially you know, we are, we are composed of and we are consuming and we are producing the same atoms that we're, you know, always existing with. And so in that sense, I, I found that to be a really, really compelling aspect of, of the story as well. Yeah, it, it's kind of dreamy sometimes yeah. <laughs> just to note that, you know, oh, we're made out of the dust of stars. Yeah. But it's like, well, no, like, can you, could you push that thought a little bit further <laughs> to kind of the, like the practical level and maybe sort of use that to guide your life rather than being like, oh my God, I'm made out of stardust. You know what I mean? Like it's a, there, there's certain patterns of thinking we get pushed into and yeah, the biospherians were definitely well ahead of the curve on that one. So Stotts is part of the latter camp, let's say. He's someone who is viscerally frightened by the idea of being stuck on this planet as the rest of humanity kind of destroys itself. And that isn't uh, looking like a completely implausible uh, prediction, but it's worth remembering that escaping the planet is only one possible response to that idea. And you say you're not interested in going to Mars, but more so in what these projects tell us about life on Earth. So what do you think accounts for that difference in curiosity between you and Stotts? Yeah, I think that, like, I think I'm probably just too much of a hedonist to go into space. <laughs> like, I'm, sh- I'm sure space travel has its pleasures. Like, astronauts talk about, you know, the sublime moment of seeing Earth as a, as a blue dot in the cosmos, but... I I think those pleasures are probably too spare for my taste, <laughs> but yeah, I I mean more seriously, I think that I think that Stotts and I just have really different notions of of what it means to protect the future of humanity. You know, he he told me that he sees humans as kind of a virus that have taken over the planet and you know are always looking for room to expand. And so in that sense, it's necessary to go into space in order to ensure human survival, because we just need more and more territory. And that's just the nature of of what humans are. And that, you know, that's a position I've heard as well from, you know, not not few people. But, you know, I think that I, I guess I'm more interested in in, you know, the project of of civilization rather than than just survival and 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 I'm still placing faith in 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 that project the project of civilization to ultimately you know save what is most dear to the species which is the planet that we co-evolved with 
and you know where we where we live now right and obviously elon musk jeff bezos very well publicized space travelers and stats is he's part of the camp that believes that you know space exploration doesn't have to be specifically run by the government like nasa you know that anyone could kind of do this yeah but your piece raises questions about how many others might be out there who are engaged in smaller and less visible projects of space exploration or space travel so how many statuses do you think there are and could you tell us about some of the other smaller scale projects you encountered while working on this piece so there are a lot <laughs> i was i was surprised <laughs> to find Yeah, there's been this really interesting paradigm shift in basically since the space race. You know, the space race, the main characters being essentially the Soviet Union and the United States and their their respective space agencies. And so, so, yeah, in the past, and you could say that we're now in kind of a modern space race. And I think that, that one of the unique features about it is that there are these kind of other entities that are coming and playing a much more important role. Musk being the not other countries, just like really rich guys. <laughs> yeah, really rich guys. Well, and to the exception of China, China's doing an incredible amount of work on this and kind of newly so. At any rate, aside from these kind of highly publicized and very public and very rich dudes, there's also kind of a spattering of medium sized projects all around the world that I encountered. And then I think Stotz's stances that that you know there there are probably more that we don't even know about you know just people you know working in their backyards or whatever but you know just to name a, a few people who i encountered or projects that i encountered there's a guy named Cameron Smith who is doing DIY spacesuits <laughs> he's he's out <laughs> in Oregon and he's gotten you know he's been working on it for for many years and gotten quite a lot of interest and and that's actually how Stotts Stotts went and volunteered with Cameron, and that's how he met someone named Trent Tresh, who he's now working with on this on this space analog project at at Biosphere Two. And so, you know, in some sense, there's a lot of people working on this all over the place, and in another sense, it's a very small community, and and people tend to know each other. So, you know, to that point, the Mars Society, which is a nonprofit advocating for travel to Mars, has been running a space analog in Utah for years. The main differentiation between that space analog and the one that Stotts is building is that the one in Utah, and this is true of almost all space analogs and certainly all of them that are non-governmental, is that they are not hermetically sealed, that they're in, primarily intended to look at the psychological effect of long-term isolation and also the social dynamics that happen in a small group of people who are all kind of enclosed with each other. Very important. <laughs> yeah, very important and very weird. <laughs> yeah. Very strange things happen when people are enclosed with each other. They kind of, you know, as you can imagine, extrapolating from like roommate experiences, maybe people just go, go nuts. <laughs> or the pandemic. Or yeah, the there pandemic. are lots of different analogs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's that was the one run by the Mars Society. And actually, Stotts also took part in that a few years back. He was at the Space Analog in Utah for a couple of weeks as the he's also a documentary filmmaker, one of his his many, his many careers. And and so he was he was there. And then there's also High Seas, which is a space analog run by an astrobiologist in Hawaii. 
and that's also that's received NASA funding, but it's it's not governmental. There's a newer one called Dunaris, which is a space mission analog at a former military airport in Poland. So, and then there are a ton of other projects that are more closely aligned with with government sponsored research. But but those are you know that's just a, a short list of of some of the projects and the people who are working on space exploration in pretty much a, a, an entirely non governmental way. Right, and. Speaking of the psychological effects of being sealed inside an enclosed space like this with other people, there's a fascinating moment when you're in the chamber with Stotts and Stotts says that he would rather be alone on a spaceship to Mars for seven months than sealed in with another person. And you you very skillfully zero in on this moment and connected with a certain attitude toward perhaps a discomfort with the idea of interdependence, which you connect with the impossibility of control. And I'm not sure I have a totally specific question, but I'd be curious to hear you expand on that connection a bit more since, again, it seems like a very central part of this piece and the motivation behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this it is, I have a kind of growing suspicion that this really gets at the heart of a lot of tropes about space. But it is kind of something that has been ineffable to me in a lot of moments. And so I, I, I did struggle to articulate this in the piece and, and it's still kind of a kind of a set of thoughts that are that are in, in formation. But you know, I think that it seems to me and like just as a you know, as a small caveat, this is not the case in every instance, and Stotts, especially as an individual, is very, very thoughtful about this. But I do get the sense increasingly that the extractive mode is kind of the default for how contemporary space thinkers evoke the relationship between humans and the planet. And like probably as a result by extension, like maybe the expression of it is different, but I think by extension, I think that they also think about the relationship between humans and other planets in these terms. So even in biological life support systems, which aim to recreate some of the most essential chemical relationships on Earth, there's still this sense of understanding ecosystem function as like a useful tool for human lives. In other words, kind of, you know, centering the human experience and then secondarily giving kind of lip service to the ways that nature provides, you know, breathable air and food, you know, (laughs) so... Which, again, I think that notion is very clearly tied to colonialism yes. and how it's like a very deeply ingrained thing that... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The people don't necessarily, or the people who have the means to start doing these things don't necessarily want to interrogate. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's it. I mean, it, it, it derives from this cultural context of of especially like Western Western philosophy and theology, right? to render the the planet as kind of this set of amenities that we've been provided. <laughs> and I think that it's a comfortable way of seeing things. I think it's much less comfortable, although it's more precise, obviously, is to understand human life as belonging historically and inextricably to the life of the planet. You know, humanity has co-evolved with the planet. And I think that, you know, and this is probably, you know, another source of discomfort for, for, for kind of the status quo mode of, of thinking is the central conceit of this extractive mode 
is the idea that somehow the planet is is under our control, that we can determine. And that's not to say, obviously, you know, I would never argue that the planet isn't susceptible to human influence, right? I mean, of course not, not, not in the midst of the climate crisis. But I think that if anything, it's become more clear than ever that it's not under our control. And I think that that's, that's a very unnerving thought for a lot of people. And I think it's a very unnerving thought, especially for this new generation of technologists who are at the forefront of the, of the new space rush. Right. And, you know, that that type of thinking seems connected with the larger shifts we've seen in space exploration in the last few decades, at least on a cultural or symbolic level, where, you know, the, the game seems to have shifted from being a nationalistic, but still sometimes species focused enterprise where, you know, one one giant leap for mankind to being the province of mega rich entrepreneurs voted by I guess whatever is motivating them, maybe <laughs> profits, yeah, profit, or you know, just kind of like they they have their golden ticket to get out of planet Earth and screw everybody else. But as someone who's given a lot of thought to this, it would be interesting to hear you talk about what you see in terms of the ways the meanings of space exploration have changed since Armstrong's time. Mm, yeah, well, there's actually an essay that I read when I was researching this piece and it actually, it doesn't make it its way into the piece, but I found it really helpful for, for kind of framing my thinking. It's, um, it's this obscure essay, I think written by a science fiction writer named Gary Westfall. I think it's called the case against space. At any rate, it was written in the late nineties and, and he, he kind of goes through the historic justifications that have been given for our, you know, fascination with space and for, you know, our putting resources essentially into, into traveling to space. And then he, you know, he one by one kind of dismantles each of these justifications. So, you know, the, the first one that he touches on is the idea that space travel somehow uh, speaks to our, our deepest instincts as a species, which is, a, you know, a very, a very popular trope. And the point that he makes is that, that most human advancement has come from established societies with, with, you know, rooted populations. And so, and then he touches on, you know, basically he, he kind of charts the history saying, you know, the first justification that's given is that this is the deepest instinct that we have as, as a species. And then he says, then, then there was an economic case made for, for space, you know, where, people can make tons of money if they just go and and there's so many there's so many minerals and things to mine and and that's why we should go into space and then he touches on like the defense case um, where you know we need to go into space because we need to protect the planet against asteroids (laughs) for example which is a really interesting example you know with the the this movie everyone's talking about yeah exactly (laughs) um so so and he kind of associates each of these arguments with certain time periods you know from basically from the beginning of the space race to the time when the essay was written which is the 1990s as i said but i would add i think a fourth justification which is which has kind of become more salient in the time since the essay was published, which is this idea that 
largely as a result of like human fecklessness, the planet will become uninhabitable and the species will go extinct unless we, unless we establish colonies on other planets. And I, I, I think that, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really like sad state of affairs, but I also think that, that this escapist stance is kind of a, as we've talked about, I think it's kind of a lazy imperialist one that also condemns the planet, which is still under the influence of human choices, to a future that's wasted while also absolving itself, like, peremptorily of any responsibility for that outcome. But, you know, I mean, I think that, that and, and, and my, my sense is, is that there is still plenty of room for the harder work of, of reconciling our existence with the planet. And, and so to me, I think that that's, that's still a worthy, a worthy endeavor. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also think it's important to note that there have been other, in human history, there have been other instances of climate change or extreme climate collapse where, you know, formerly in the Indus Valley, there was, you know, the civilization that was very highly developed, had cities, and then the patterns of the monsoons changed and it kind of wiped out all of their irrigation systems, their farming. And so it's not like all these people died. They just went, they moved away and they went on to a much simpler existence. And I think there's a bad tendency on the left, let's say, to assume that, okay, this environmental collapse will mean the end of humanity as we know it. And it's like, well, no, it really, it doesn't have to be that way. What, what is more than likely is that, you know, to borrow Stotz's term, the human virus will survive just in a different form. You know, we won't have ACs running all the time. It'll be different. And having that, sort of knowing that you can kind of start to shift your thinking and again, move away from the sort of like, well, this thing's all used up. It's done. Right, right. And consider the possibility that that collapse is in a foregone conclusion. Exactly. I think that there is a tendency to to kind of throw up our hands and say, okay, well, it's all it's all over. And and it's not. It's it's really, if anything, like it's just it's just kind of getting started. And and this is this is the the critical point. So so in that sense, I I, I think that it, you know it's just different ways of thinking about human creativity and adaptability and, and where it should be applied. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've worked together previously on a story for the website, which I would really encourage you to read. That's about this really terrible catastrophe involving oil pipelines in Colombia. And you do a lot of reporting on climate and environmental issues, which are often squeezed out by stories that, let's say, generate more comment and have more immediate implications like, oh, did you hear the crazy thing Donald Trump said? I don't even need to sort of spell that out, I think, after four years of Trump reporting. But many news outlets have even admitted that they don't run climate change stories or they haven't in the past because they don't do well, that they don't get eyeballs. So how do you deal with that bias and you know, how do you see a way around it? Because as you said, we're already living with climate change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's always interesting to talk about telling climate stories, but I would take exception. Uh, one of the pieces I wrote a couple of years ago was about Australia's attempt to uh, protect the native species found on the continent by eradicating what they deemed was, you know, an, an invasive pest which was feral cats. 
the cat murder the piece. The cat murder piece. And, uh, <laughs> Famous. <laughs> exactly. And it got, you know, when it came out, it got more comments than I think any other piece had gotten on the magazine website that year. And it went all sorts of viral. And um, I was asked on, on to a bunch of different really interesting shows, including uh, the shows of a few like far right commentators. And so the, the difficulty with climate stories is that they've always been kind of rendered as science stories. And people think, well, I don't understand science. Like science is complicated. It's kind of boring. And it's very incremental, and it's often contradictory. You know, one one finding will be will be published, and then you know the next finding that's published, you know, casts an, an additional nuance on that finding, and you know it can be very difficult to to keep up as a as a lay reader. And I think that that somehow in the course of you know developing what climate stories look like and would be in the media scape. It was, you know, decided through some sort of, you know, like collective process that that the story of climate is is belongs to, you know, science. Whereas it's pretty clear at this point that it, it doesn't. That it so fundamentally touches on every single aspect of our lives that you can tell any kind of story, and it can be a climate story. And I think that the example of the story that I did for Harper's out of Columbia. I think that, you know, I obviously, you know, stories have their own lives and some do well and some do, don't do well and, and whatever. But, you know, I think that in terms of being, you know, an interesting, captivating piece, I think that a lot of the aspects of that piece are things that, that kind of capture people's imagination. Like these pipeline attacks are, are very violent. They're very <laughs> explosive obviously um the the piece had you know this incredible incredible compelling main character and i was able to you know go in an airplane over these like remote places where there are these you know huge pools of oil collecting in the middle of some of the most verdant landscape on the planet and i talked to one of the you know the guerrilla commanders i think that you know in that sense it's an interesting story for all of the, you know, the tensions and these competing perspectives and, you know, the fact that, for example, the, the main character had to sit across from, you know, one of the members of the, of the guerrilla group that blew up the pipeline that killed her family just a couple of weeks later when she saw him sitting, you know, sitting across the street. And, you know, this, that's, that's, human, that's human drama and that's human tension that, that is very easy to understand. And yet at the end of the day, as a result of the fact that these that these pipeline explosions are spilling huge amounts of oil across the country, it is also a climate story, or an environmental story at the very least, and and yet it kind of adheres to none of the traditional tropes that we think of as as being a, an environmental story. So in that sense, I think that I think that we just have to rethink how these stories are told and and you know think more creatively about framing stories as as climate stories or framing stories to to illustrate these these bigger truths that we're living with but still in a way that that speaks to you know our our most our most natural story telling and understanding instincts yeah that's very true and i think perhaps it shouldn't have to take a progression of climate change to sort of allow that change to happen again this is like this is just like anything it's a it's a mindset it's a problem of thought it's not something out there that what oh my god never mind. I, 
I, you know what I mean. It's, it's not, it's just like you have to change how you think about shit. It's not hard. It's free. Just do it. Um, but, you know, speaking about these, let's say, questions of mindset and how things have changed over the past couple of years, I wanted to ask you, you know, there was this Facebook group famously called I Fucking Love Science. And over, I would say probably like, 10, 15 years, there's been this real kind of fetishization yeah. of science in a way that I'm not, I'm not anti-science, but I think when you kind of fetishize science in this way, you, you maybe you forget the bad things science has done, which, you know, there's bad things that have been done in the name of science or been justified by science at the time. And I, I can't help but think of the Stotz's quote from the story where he's like cute little things aside it's time for science it's kind of like embodies this, <laughs> like science is this great leveling tool thing that you know again you can assert control so I guess how do you feel like that shift and that fetishization and you know this this sort of like valorizing of of science has impacted not just our relationship to understanding climate change, but just sort of approaching things like space exploration, those things that are, are but are not related to those issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that I studied science journalism and there was a, a word for like this kind of this kind of storytelling, which was like gee whiz stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and I think that that they run the risk of, of oversimplification to such a degree that, that the story itself is is hidden. The meaning of the story is hidden. But I also think that that I don't want to completely dismiss the the role that like I fucking love science played, which is <laughs> huge. <laughs> yeah, but like weirdly aside, huge. Aside from like its popularity, it, it had a really like a very real. It kind of prompted a very real reaction in people of of marvel and awe. Yeah, and I think that you know again allowing for the danger of over, oversimplification, I do think that any kind of, of, you know, science communication that can inspire those kinds of reactions, because so often it is the case that, that the things that we take for granted and the things that are around us, like, for example, I had to, I had to revisit the science of photosynthesis for this piece, which, you know, I went on like a whole digression about, and then we ended up cutting it out. But, you know, it, it's just, it's, it is, it is actually amazing. And so if you have an occasion to, you know, stop and to recognize these things that we take for granted on a daily basis and to, and to marvel at how the world works and how the universe works, that's a beautiful thing. And so I don't want to, dis I don't want to dismiss that. And I think that, that coming back to the question of, of telling science stories, I'm not sure that it would be, you know, the worst thing if there were a little bit more, you know, pausing and marveling at the at the way that the Earth's biogeochemical cycles, for example, function, you know, within within climate storytelling, that wouldn't be the worst. That wouldn't be the worst thing for, you know, for climate for climate narratives, especially you know, returning again to this idea of hopelessness in, in the Anthropocene and, and what can be done to confront that that feeling, that kind of um, that background panic. <laughs> right. Right. Well, thank you very much for doing this. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for, for asking me to do it, Violet. It was actually really fun. 
You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 